When people take Advil in high dosages, overdosing essentially, they may have medical emergencies. But as used, as directed by the FDA-approved label, we know that mifepristone causes more complications than Advil or Tylenol do. part two of a two-part conversation about the federal lawsuit Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine v. FDA with attorney Eric Baptist and board-certified OBGYN Dr. Ingrid Scott. I recommend you listen to part one if you haven't already for an overview of what the case is about and an update on its progress. So Eric, I'm going to start with you again. Uh, the common narrative surrounding chemical abortion drugs is that they are safe. Um, you know, as, as Ingrid said, we hear oftentimes that they're safer than Tylenol. Uh, for almost a year now, we've been able to see this narrative scrutinized in court. What are some of the arguments that the defendants have advanced in support of this narrative, and how do you think that they've held up? Well, I think you know, they say it's, it's safer than Tylenol or Advil, and we've kind of, even a lawyer like me can dissect that to show that it's just simply not true. When, when people take Advil in high dosages, over, overdosing essentially, they may have medical emergencies and reactions to that. But as used, as directed by the FDA-approved label, we know that mifepristone causes more complications, more harm to the people who take it than Advil or Tylenol do. That's just the simple fact. And so when they conflate the two, it's because they're trying to hide the truth from the American people. I think the other thing is just, you know, the FDA on the one hand says, oh, it's safe, you're not going to have any complications. Then you look at the label and you look at the warnings and you realize, nope, that doesn't seem safe when upwards of 5% of women will end up in the emergency room. They admit that. It's, and one thing we've tried to tell the Supreme Court is that this is always part of the plan. Since the 2000 approval till the 2021 decisions, emergency room doctors were always going to be part of that to treat women and girls harmed by these drugs, in particular because they never required the abortionists to have uh, admitting rights to hospitals to treat complications. They've removed the doctor from the equation. And so the, the FDA has recognized, well, okay, maybe 5% of you will have to go to the emergency room for complications. Like, that's that's a problem. You don't see that on the Advil warning label, do you? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, the FDA continues to rely on really inadequate uh, evidence of the complications. You know, Ingrid, as you said, we are not good at capturing data in general in the U.S., but when you look at the process of how the FDA captures these complications, now remember, since 2016, they haven't even required that complications be reported. So now it's completely voluntary, but even the process that you have to go through, and and I've shared this story many times, that the first time I tried to submit a complication to the FDA adverse event reporting system, it took me two hours to submit the complication. For any other physician listening out there, you know that most of us don't have time to sit around for two hours and try and get a complication reported. Um, the actual, like the official process that the complication reporting has to go through is that it be reported to the manufacturer who then is supposed to report it to the FDA. I mean, Talk about a conflict of interest. And so, you know, if we look at the number of adverse events that the FDA claims have been reported uh, related to chemical abortion, and you look at even the most conservative estimates of complications related to mifepristone, Ingrid, as you said, we know that it's actually four times more likely to have a complication with these drugs than surgical abortion. But even if we use conservative estimates of maybe a 2 to 3% complication rate, and then you take that times the number of chemical abortions that we know have occurred in this country, 
the FDA has actually captured less than 6% of the total complications, and yet they use these really um, falsely low numbers to claim that this is a safe drug. And they completely ignore the fact that they are doing inadequate screening for many things, like gestational age, like ectopic pregnancy. Um, and so speaking of that, Dr. Scott, what, what's your reaction to these arguments from a medical perspective? I mean, how, how accurate do you think this is? And, and how uh, honestly, how worried does that make you um, for the fact that this governmental agency that's tasked with protecting us and our patients, it has approved a drug to be used like this? It's very concerning to me that medicine has been subverted by ideology. And I think that when you look at abortion, you certainly see that, but you can look in other areas as well. We can look at the COVID response. We can look at climate science. I mean, there's so many ways that you can see that an ideologically driven researcher can um, frame his results in a way that looks um beneficial to whatever it is he's arguing for. And unfortunately, the media do not seem um, either qualified or willing to dig into this um, d more deeply. Like you said, um, the information um, that the FDA was collecting, they never published um, to the public. It took um, uh, researchers from our side to file a FOIA request to even get access to that data. But another way you can look, um, when you look at the abortion industry studies and you see often so many women lost to follow up in those studies, because again, the, the biggest problem with collecting data on abortion is that there's really no mandatory um, reporting requirements, certainly not on a federal level. Even the states that have requirements in law don't have any enforcement mechanisms or penalties for non-compliance. So, you know, basically the abortion industry is allowed to report complications if they want. And as you mentioned, even those of us that are inclined to want to report complications, it's very, very hard to do so. I've had the exact same experience that you have. Um, but when these women are told it's safer than Tylenol and they have a complication, do you think they go back to that abortion provider that they know lied right. to them? Of course not. I've seen these women in my private office. I've seen many of them in the emergency room. They know if they're going to get care, they need to go elsewhere. And I've also had women tell me that when they've gone back to the abortion provider, the only thing they've been told to do is take another dose of mesoprostol, rub your stomach, maybe the bleeding will stop. That's the kind of advice these abortionists are giving them after they've created a complication in that woman. Yeah, it really is horrendous. And, you know, you do, it does make you wonder, where are the feminist groups in all of this? You know, why are we not hearing more of an outcry about how women and girls are being treated so callously in this country through these drugs that are causing harm, and yet they're being told, um, you know, almost, I, I hate to overuse the term gaslighting, but I feel like that's what's happening to these women. You know, they're being told, no, this is very safe and and it's easy. And, and then when they have these complications, then they feel like they have to keep it quiet. Yeah, Eric. I, I just have to add one more thing. Uh, again, I'm just the lawyer here, but <laughs> I, I, I think it's important for everybody to know, what, especially with, with the 2021 approval of mail order chemical abortions, because you hear a lot of the times, oh, this is safe. You can self-administer. You can do-it-yourself abortion at home. You don't have to go to a brick-and-mortar Planned Parenthood to do it. 
And what are the, how did the FDA justify this? Because I think it's very important to understand. They had two sets of data. One would be the, the adverse event reporting system, and then they also said the scientific literature. But when they rely on the, the fares, if you will, um, in 2021, that was five years after they removed the non-fatal complication reporting requirement. And on their own website, on their FAQs for the fare system, they say, do not use these numbers as to know how many number of incidences that occur with any particular drug because it's not reliable for that purposes. And then secondarily, the published literature is like, well, that sounds fine. But in the FDA's own decision document, they said this published literature is insufficient to support the safety of this new regimen. So they said, well, we have this FAERS data and then we have this published literature. So two openly inadequate sources of data combined does not make it sufficient. But that's how the FDA concluded it would be safe. And so that should worry everybody. That's that's concerning. The FDA should do a better job. Women deserve better and uh, frankly, the American public deserve better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we are calling on the FDA, as you said earlier, not to do something extraordinary, but to do actually their job, <laughs> to, to do appropriate safety studies, to test these drugs in the way that they have approved them to be used in real world use, which they have never actually done. And we are seeing the complications. I think any physician, anyone who, any medical professional who cares for pregnant women who is listening to this will recognize how egregious this is. We would never use this standard in treating any other condition in pregnancy and treating any other condition in women. You know, I when um, when ACOG, the American College of OBGYNs, put out their new practice bulletin on on chemical abortion and called and was saying, you know, that no in-person visit is necessary, that that's medically unnecessary, that ultrasounds are not needed. I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine who's not pro-life, and, and I was asking her if she had seen that practice bulletin, and I said, you know, would you ever, if a woman thought she was having a miscarriage and called the office but hadn't had an ultrasound to document her gestational age, didn't know if she had an intrauterine pregnancy, would you ever just prescribe her mesoprostol over the phone uh, without seeing her in person? And she said, absolutely not. Why? on earth would I do that? That'd be irresponsible. You have to see her. You have to do an exam. You have to talk to her. And yet this is exactly what groups like ACOG and um, the abortion lobby and the FDA are advocating for. And the FDA's own lawyer, when uh, in oral arguments at the Fifth Circuit, the FDA's own lawyer said that the way she thought women should be screened for ectopic pregnancy is simply by asking them if they have shoulder pain. Now, any medical professional listening to this recognizes how awful that is, but if you're not a medical professional, the reason that's so awful is because if a woman with an ectopic pregnancy has shoulder pain, it means her abdomen is full of blood, so much blood, that it's irritating her diaphragm and causing referred pain into her shoulder. So if she has shoulder pain, she better be on an operating table within a few minutes or she's going to be dead. And this is how the FDA thinks that women and girls in this country should be treated if they're seeking abortion and, you know, we cry foul, and that's part of why this this lawsuit is in process and, and definitely why we think people need to be educated on it. Um, Ingrid, I'm going to go back to you. At this point uh, in our nation's history, unfortunately, these, these dangerous chemical abortion drugs are more accessible than ever. And not only that, but because of the way they're being dispensed, women are receiving even less counseling than they did before. How do you think that that's impacting women's mental health and also their their uh, right to receive informed consent? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just taking all standards of medical care and throwing them out the window. So if these women in crisis, um, we all recognize, you know, they're not thinking straight. Their fight or flight reflex is fully engaged when they have a crisis pregnancy and don't know what to do. When they go to a chemical abortion website, of course, we don't know the, um, we don't keep a good job of um, tracking complications. So nobody's telling them what the risk really are and how likely it is that they're going to have a complication. But additionally, alternatives are not being discussed at all. There are 3,000 crisis pregnancy centers in our country that would love to walk alongside a woman in a crisis pregnancy um, to give her the emotional, material, um, relationship support that she needs to carry her baby. This is human life we're talking about. It's not a, a minor decision. This is a decision that a woman is going to reflect upon the rest of her life. And in many cases, she's going to regret. Um, some very high-quality research from Dave Reardon um, uh, recently demonstrated that of women with a history of abortion, um, uh, uh, nearly a quarter describe their abortion as coerced or unwanted. And about 60% said that they would have carried their child to term if they'd had more support. So we recognize that while women are being railroaded into abortions very quickly as a knee-jerk response, in, in the majority of cases, that's not actually what the woman even wants. And so we need to recognize Again, if the, if the goal is a dead baby, then the abortion industry is getting what it wants and the collateral damage to women they're willing to accept because they're getting their primary goal. But if the goal is a woman's mental um, well-being, we know that so many women suffer anxiety, depression, substance and alcohol abuse, self-harm after abortion. We know um, from looking at um, European records linkage studies that a woman is six to seven times as likely to commit suicide in the year following an abortion um, compared to if she had brought that child to birth. So, so we're just setting women up for devastating mental health complications. And um, I think we should all recognize this is not how we want to treat women. We can offer them so many better options than ending the life of their child, again, without any medical supervision, alone, suffering their complications alone. Absolutely. And not just alone and and without support, but in their own home, in their dorm room. You know, I when I think about these drugs being dispensed on college campuses and what it was like when I was in college and in a dorm and you share a bathroom with other, you know, with all the other girls on your floor, the fact that women, girls are experiencing this in those situations, I think just makes it all the more um, devastating and, and all the more traumatic for them because they can't escape that place. You know, every, I've heard women say that then every time they went into their bathroom, they relived that abortion experience. And, 
you know, recently it was in the news, Britney Spears sharing the, the experience that she had with a chemical abortion and how excruciating that experience was for her. And she, you know, recounts it with very vivid details even 20 years later. This is not something that women do quickly and forget about it. It's something that has a lasting impact. And at the very least, you know, our position, I know Ingrid, you and I, and, and both of the organizations that, that we represent, um, our position is that women deserve excellent health care. They don't deserve negligent care, honestly, frankly, medical malpractice, like what's being done now. And they also deserve fully informed consent, that if they are going to make that decision, they should go into it understanding what the ramifications are going to be for them. So, um, Eric, can you share with us, you've already shared a little bit on the last episode, but uh, what's next for this case? Um, I know we're waiting on a Supreme Court decision. What do you, uh, can, can you prognosticate of, of a couple's sort of maybe pathways of what the next few months for this case might look like? That's a difficult question to answer, so I'll, I'll do the best that I can without, uh, well, once we fully brief all of this, then it's in the Supreme Court's hands, and the Supreme Court did, could do a multitude of things. And one thing I forgot to mention was in the intervening weeks and months since the Fifth Circuit decision, a group of states, the states of Missouri, Kansas, and Idaho, moved to join our lawsuit down in the district court. But that's important because that may factor into whether the Supreme Court takes our case because states are also harmed by mail-order abortion, right? Pro-life states who want to protect their women and children from dangerous drugs, especially abortion-inducing drugs, uh, are being undermined thwarted by the FDA's approval of mail-order chemical abortion. And then, then we have these sanctuary states that are protecting the abortionists, let's say, in New York, to mail it into Missouri. And so they, they are doing their best to enforce their laws, but it's difficult to do in, under this regimen. So they are harmed differently than how our clients are harmed in this case. And I think a lot of the question that's being presented to the, the Supreme Court is whether do our doctors and medical associations have sufficient harm to uh, injuries, if you will, to ha bring this lawsuit. The states clearly have that as well. So I think that will give the Supreme Court some pause on what to do. And the states have said that as much. And so that's going to be an interesting dynamic because the, the Supreme Court could deny this review now, they could hold it and wait, let the states catch up. There's a lot of hypotheticals being thrown around in the legal world, but I think we'll see some type of movement from the court in the new year. And either way, whether this, the Supreme Court grants review or denies review, it's going to be a busy season for us because when we get down to the district court, we're going to have to do some discovery, um, You know, go see what the FDA has in its records because they haven't really produced the administrative record yet. We would love to see what they have in their files and see the concerns from their own line staff, the reviewers who are looking at the clinical investigations and other data that had concerns about the safety of this drug. Uh, or we're going to brief at the Supreme Court and we're happy for the American public to hear at the highest court of what, what the FDA has done to flagrantly violate the law to the detriment of women. Great. Thank you for that update. So the, the I suppose, potential outcome from the Supreme Court that would protect women and girls the quickest would be if the Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear your case, we're going to let the, the fifth uh, Fifth Circuit ruling go into place. Is that right? That's correct. And that's what we're telling the court because we can't realize those gains and those protections for women and girls until it, when it does deny it. Because if it doesn't deny and decides to review this case, we could be a year or two away from getting those gains realized. And frankly, in the interim, we know our doctors have been harmed. Our, we know their patients have been harmed. And every day this drug continues to be in the marketplace or the, the current regimens allowed, women and girls are going to be harmed by it. Great. 
All right. Well, we're going to wrap up um, by asking, I'm going to ask each one of you, and Eric, we'll start with you, if you have any just closing thoughts that you want to make sure that our listeners hear, and then also uh, where people can go to keep up with you or with the case. My closing thought is, uh, what are we finding about now with the FDA at the Supreme Court? They really don't want women to be screened for these life-threatening conditions. That's what they're up against. They, they just say no, you know, kind of say, we want these abortion drugs to be in all 50 states, the easiest possible means, but it's also the most dangerous possible means without any medical intervention. And that's what we're really fighting for right now at the Supreme Court, is to have those safeguards for women and girls who do take these drugs. Um, for more information about this case and the latest updates, please check out ADFlegal.org and look for our case. Sometimes I just Google FDA and ADF and it gets right to our page. That's the quickest way to do it sometimes. Perfect. All right. And Ingrid, any closing thoughts? And then how can people also uh, see your research as well? Yeah, thanks, Christina. I think um, I am optimistic that if the American public really understood what was going on with abortion, particularly chemical abortion, that they would resist it, that they, that suddenly we'd be having a, diff- a different conversation. So I'm passionate about education, um, just educating our family, our peers, even fellow physicians. Um, as we've discussed, so many doctors don't even know to look for chemical abortion complications because they don't think they exist. ACOG has told them that. Um, so um, we, on our website, um, Lozier, L-O-Z-I-E-R, institute.org, we do have a number of pages um, devoted to this topic, abortiondrugfacts.com. So there is quite a bit of information available, as well, of course, as on the APLOG website, Um, So the first thing we need to do is educate ourselves, and the second is to educate those around us so that people really understand how much this is harming women. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, You both are are dear friends, but also wonderful experts on this issue, so it was really fun to to have you both on together today. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us. If you are a medical professional, don't forget to register for our conference, MBEC 2024, and you'll be able to see Dr. Scott speak in person there. You know, it's clear in this post-real world that there is still a lot to do to change hearts and minds on abortion and to educate our next generation of medicine on the harms of induced abortion, as well as promoting the practice of life-affirming medicine. APLUG is uniquely positioned to do just that. But we cannot accomplish this without the support of our members and donors. So if you would like to partner with us to ensure that life-affirming medicine and excellent health care for women and children continues to be available, please consider APLUG in your year-end giving. You can make a tax-deductible donation by going to aaplog.org donate. If you liked this episode, don't forget to give us a five-star review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. If you have any topic requests, feel free to message us on social media or via email at info at Hi there, this is Miriam Diallo, Applog's communications manager and the other host of this podcast. I just wanted to quickly jump in with breaking news that follows up on something that Eric said, but actually just came out the day before we were going to release this half of the conversation. So Eric had mentioned that the U.S. Supreme Court was weighing whether or not to hear this case. Well, as of today, they have announced that they will in fact be hearing arguments for this case. So Eric and his team 
will be arguing in front of the Supreme Court in the coming months, and we should get a ruling from the court by the end of June. So going into 2024, as usual, be sure to stay tuned as you get updates from this podcast and also from ADF's website, adflegal.org. I'm excited, and I hope to see you next week. We have a good episode lined up. We have a, a OBGYN will be explaining her unique approach to holistic fertility care for her patients. Thank you so much.